John chapter 15, if you have a Bible, I would encourage you to open it. If you're using your phone, you can scroll there, John chapter 15. We're going to be spending some time there this morning. But before we do that, I have a question. Who here has been to a really good dinner party? Anyone? The food was good, the company was even better, the conversation was fantastic. For you, a little younger, maybe dinner party is too formal of language for you. Maybe someone just invited you over and you ate food together. Yeah? Yeah? It's nice, right? When someone welcomes you into their most like, intimate place that they have, and you get to, get to know them over some good food, it's, it's an amazing experience. And I hope, I'm assuming most of us have had that experience, um, but maybe it's been a while for you, and I'm hoping that that comes to an end this month. Do we know why? Because our practice of the month is hospitality. And we are going to dive into that passage this morning and continue through our series on the I Will Statements of Jesus. But before we do that, a brief word on hospitality. Such an important practice of Jesus. And the reason we've taken so long to get to it is not because the ones that we highlighted before are more important. It's because I'm selfish. And I kept this one in my back pocket until I actually had a place that I could extend hospitality. So if you're waiting for it, my apologies, it took so long to get there. Um, but please, engage in this one. It's not that complicated. You invite someone over. Um, and we don't have to have the most beautiful homes. We don't have to cook patty daw level food. That's just the avenue through which we get to invite people in and allow God to use that time both for the betterment of the people we invite in and for ourselves. And so please engage. And I started by saying, who's been to like a really, really good dinner party? Um, again, we don't have to have our eyes set on that. If you do want to, to absolutely kill it, that's fine. Um, I think you're going to be left a little bit disappointed because the greatest dinner party of all time has already taken place. And, and you read about it in a passage of scripture that we have been working through together as a church. Um, 2,000 years ago, record, recorded for us in the Gospel of John, chapters 13 to 17, again, a scripture that we have been working through together as a church, you get, in my opinion, is the greatest, most epic dinner party of all time. Most people like to call it the upper room discourse. I think that's kind of an underwhelming name for it. Because truly remarkable things happen at this, scripture doesn't call it a dinner party, but I call it a dinner party. You have things like Jesus washing his disciples' feet. I'm sure we've all heard of that one before. He then goes on to predict Judas's betrayal. You have drama. He predicts his death and resurrection. He then predicts Peter's denial. He goes on to say things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through me. For I am the vine, and you are the branch, and if you remain in me, and I in you, you will bear much fruit, and apart from me, you can do nothing. These are teachings of Jesus that the church for the last 200, 2,000 years has been vital to their practice of the faith, and that we go back to here at this church, and for the past 2,000 years, Christians around the world, going back to those fundamental teachings of Jesus. And it all happened at this one dinner party. Um, epic might honestly be underselling what took place there that day. And we're going to pick up roughly where we left off last week in John chapter 15. Before we do that, let me warn you, we are jumping 
right in. We are not tiptoeing our, our, our feet into the waters, into this conversation. And for those of you who maybe have not been here the last number of weeks, just to kind of frame where we're diving in, um, this is Jesus sitting down with his disciples right before his death and resurrection and before they are then sent out to testify to Jesus and kind of embracing them for what is to come. Jesus says this in verse 18. That's where we're going to start. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. As I said, we're, we're jumping right in. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. So Jesus is saying to his disciples that the reason that the world hates them is because they do not belong to it. Right? Instead, they belong to a different world and a different kingdom, right? the kingdom of God, with Jesus as their ultimate authority. And so he goes on. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. This line kind of feels like it's, it's coming out of left, left field a little bit, but he's actually just referencing something, something he said three or four chapters earlier, which was around the same dinner table. Because um, in John 13, Jesus, again, humbles himself and he washes his disciples' feet. And he tells them that since he has given them an example to follow, and in this case, an example of humility, that they are to follow it. And so in the same way, Jesus here is saying, since he was persecuted and we are following his example, we too will naturally experience persecution. Which is why he goes on to say just that. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen, and yet they have hated both me and my Father. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. So let's hit pause there for a second, because there's quite a bit in there. Such an uplifting passage this morning, isn't it? Just kind of warms your heart. There is encouragement coming, so just wait for it. But before that, Jesus is just being very blatantly upfront and honest with his disciples that there is opposition to the kingdom of God. And there's an opposition that faces every single disciple of Jesus. And in this case, yes, Jesus is speaking to his immediate disciples, but these words ring true for any disciple of Jesus since that dinner party. There is opposition you face when you follow Jesus. And as followers of Jesus, we know that ultimately it is the evil one that is behind this opposition, but we also know that this opposition manifests itself differently depending on who we are, or what our jobs are, or maybe our family life, or where we live in the world, or what time period in the existence of humanity we live in. So for the apostles, in their time period, in their place, it was more of a physical opposition that they were going to experience. Right? They were, most of them were murdered for their devotion to the Jesus movement, or what the book of Acts calls the way. Um, for many disciples today around the world, they, they too experience that physical opposition 
to their practice of the way, um, which often leads to death, and that, that is taking place here and now. If you want to know a little bit more about what is going on tragically around the world, in our Wednesday in the Word on our YouTube page, first week with Joel Pacora, he unpacked that a little bit. Continue to keep the persecuted church in your prayers. But for us, our opposition is a little different living in the West. There are certainly many different types of opposition that we face, but one that I think is very prevalent regardless of who we are, just by nature of living in the world that we live in, is that there is a, how I am phrasing, a hostile takeover of kingdom values. And it poses quite a threat to followers of Jesus. Um, And this is what I mean by that. What seems to be happening is that the world is taking these kingdom values that we see in Scripture and removing any sense of Jesus from it. And then because they've done that, they get to redefine that that value as, as they wish. And because we don't necessarily adhere to that definition of that value, um, it's framed as if we don't actually possess it at all. And so that's, that's the theory, how that actually works its way out with a specific value. Let's go through it. So let's use love, right? Love is the pinnacle value in the kingdom of God. And we see Scripture unpack a lot about love. Uh, it's wedding season, so let's stick with 1 Corinthians, where Paul says love is patient, Love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it's not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no records of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. So that's what scripture says in one place about love. But our world doesn't necessarily, I would say, define it in those terms. And there's not really a dictionary you can go to to find like a, a generally working definition that people have in our society. But strictly by my observation, I would say the world tends to think that to love someone is to affirm someone. You love someone by affirming what they do or what they believe. There isn't a ton of room to tell someone that because they feel something that it might not necessarily be true or that maybe it's not something that they should pursue. And so if you choose to not affirm someone, then you are, by definition, being unloving. And the reason that's the case is because truth is subjective in our world. Um, and so to impose your truth on someone else is it's, it's arrogant, it's prideful, it's discriminatory, it's condemning, it's judgmental. For some, it's traumatizing. And so to avoid all that, just affirm, just affirm. How we got to that point, I'm honestly not quite sure. I'm not a cultural commentator, um, but it seems like we're there. But Paul's definition of love is quite different. Um, He says that it keeps no records of wrongs. So that kind of implies that there is some kind of wrong. Um, He says it rejoices with the truth. So there is some kind of truth. And what you don't see Paul mention in that, that verse or anywhere else in his writings is that love has anything to do with affirming at all cost. It says in 1 John 4.8 that God is love. And if love was about affirming at all cost, then frankly Jesus would never have come because the very reason Jesus came and dwelt amongst us is because the triune God did not affirm of the way that humanity was living. And so he came and he did something about it. And so if God is love, 
and God is not an affirm at all cost God, then we cannot operate as if love is defined by just affirming everything. Yet, we live in a world that tends to do that. And so as faithful followers of Jesus and his example of love, we experience the consequences of that, right? Being labeled as those things I mentioned, hateful, judgmental, as one of the many different types of phobics that you can be labeled as. Um, if you're a person of any kind of influence, social influence, you get canceled. Um, and we've seen that in the media time and time again, and it is, it is progressing to a point where it is, it is now becoming seen as an act of violence or abuse. Um, and that's not just someone's, like, experience of it that's actually feeding itself into the, the legal system in Canada, that's feeding itself into the way that our school boards make decisions. Um, it's there. And unfortunately, that's the opposition that disciples of Jesus, one example of an opposition that disciples of Jesus face in this world, a world that views our pinnacle quality very differently, um, and we experience the consequences of that. But what I think we can take out of Jesus' words in John 15 is that we shouldn't be surprised that that's happening. Because 2,000 years ago, at the greatest dinner party of all time, Jesus said that it would happen. He said we would face opposition because the world does not know the Father. Now, he didn't say we should seek out opposition, nor did he say that opposition should arise based on how we treat someone. There is no reading of this text that implies that. The very words that Jesus speaks before this text is, I give you these commands so that you may love one another. So there's no version of this text that says the, the opposition should arise by how we treat someone. But what he does say is that opposition is just a natural consequence of a devout love for Jesus and an unrelenting desire to live as a member of his kingdom. And so when it happens, we have nothing to be surprised about. Now, fortunately, Jesus doesn't leave us there. He gives us another one of his I will statements that I think is worth some attention this morning. And so once again, before we dive back into this passage, let's just try to picture the room. At this point, Judas has left the scene. He's left the dinner party. And this is just Jesus sitting down with his core 11. Um, he's just told them that he's about to leave, and he's just told them that they are going to face a heck of a lot of opposition. And so you can imagine how they probably feel, probably pretty terrified. And as always, Jesus knows exactly what those around him are thinking. And so he goes on to say this. When the Advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. So Jesus comforts his disciples by telling them that he is sending his Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth or the Advocate. And we unpacked that a little bit last week. The one who helps us, who comforts us, who intercedes on our behalf, who corrects us and challenges us sometimes, and who is always with us at any given moment. And in the words of Jesus, is also the one who testifies about him. He goes on, And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. All this I have told you, so that you will not fall away. 
So it's the advocate, the, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, that helps us remain in and with Jesus Christ as we face that opposition so that we won't, in his words, fall away and that we're able to continue to testify that Jesus Christ is Lord. They'll put you out in the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think that they're actually offering a service to God. And how true of that was their experience and of our experience today. It's, it's always framed as if our world is upholding love and justice and dignity and respect. And sometimes they are. I'm not saying they never are. But often it's framed that we are the ones that are threatening that. And it's framed as if they are offering either a service to God or maybe just a service for the betterment of humanity while we pose a threat to that. And they do that because of what Jesus says next. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. Once again, we have no reason to be surprised. I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you, but now that I am going to him who sent me, none of you, pardon me, none of you asked me, where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. But very truly I tell you, again, more comfort coming from Jesus, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will prove to the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. I think we needed another time out there for a second. Again, you'll remember last week, Terry unpacked a little bit about the Holy Spirit. Um, that could have been a 20-part sermon, but he condensed it down into one very beautifully for us. Um, but he talked a little bit about the, the role that the Holy Spirit plays both in the Trinity and in our lives. And he talked about how the Spirit unites us as followers of Jesus, how the Spirit directs us to truth or the truth, that being the person of Jesus Christ, and how the Spirit is our ultimate friend. And what Jesus is doing here is he's continuing to elaborate on some of the role that the Holy Spirit plays in our lives and in the Trinity and in God's mission. And according to Jesus, he proves to the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. Right? He is on a mission to influence the conscience of our world. About what exactly? Well, in verse 9, about sin, because people do not believe in me. Right? He wants, the Holy Spirit wants to illuminate people's hearts and minds to the truth of who Jesus Christ is and to the truth of the gospel message. Verse 10, about righteousness, because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer. The Spirit wants to illuminate people to the fact that the cross is not a symbol of Jesus' failure to lead a, a religious rebellion. The cross is a symbol of our unrighteousness, a symbol of what God did for us to give us his righteousness, a sign of his atoning sacrifice and a sign of his ultimate enthronement to the Father. And thirdly, verse 11, about judgment. Because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Jesus is the ultimate judge. And through the cross and the power, pardon me, through the cross, the power of death was broken and the prince of this world, that being the devil himself, now stands condemned. And he lost 
And even though he was defeated, he still holds power on this earth as God's full plan comes to fruition. And what the Spirit wants to do is to illuminate people's eyes to that reality, to the reality of life versus death, to the reality of the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of darkness, and to spur humanity on to choose life, and to choose life to the full, and to choose the kingdom of God. The Holy Spirit is on a mission to convict the world. That is what he is doing and what we see Jesus tell us here in John chapter 15 and 16. And how exactly he goes about doing that, that's the crazy part. Because he chooses to do that through us, through humanity. If you look at the entire library of Scripture from Genesis to Revelations, you will not see another way that the Holy Spirit works aside from working through those faithfully devoted to the triune God. Right? He enters into those created in the image of God and empowers them to fulfill that what God intends. And, and what we see in this passage, what God intends is for his followers to remain faithful to the way of Jesus, and for his followers to work together with the Spirit to not succumb to that opposition and instead prove to the world that they are wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. It's quite a passage. It is quite a passage, and there is a lot in there. And as I wrestled through it the last number of weeks, just felt like there were a few things that, that, that the Spirit wanted revealed and, and, and kind of brought to the forefront for us this morning. So three quick things as we try to figure out this passage together. The first, as I've said, is be aware that opposition is inevitable, right? If you call yourself a disciple of Jesus today, there is opposition to that. Both visible opposition that we can see in our world and the invisible opposition that sits underneath the surface of that. And there is no getting around it. Our world does not know the Father. And so how else would we expect them to respond to the way that we, for example, define love? They do not know the Father. And so when we face that opposition, that shouldn't cause us to doubt our faith as sometimes it does, or to be defeated, um, to, to maybe doubt his existence or his power or his goodness. If anything, it should strengthen it. Because 2,000 years ago, the greatest dinner party of all time, Jesus said that this would happen. Right? He laid it out for us. And so it should come at no surprise when we experience it. And... The reason I think it's important to be aware every day that we know that we might face this is because when we're prepared for something, we typically respond better than when we're thrown off or that when we're, we're caught off guard. And so if we're prepared and aware to face this as we go out and be a disciple of Jesus at our workplace or in our family or wherever, it should hopefully allow us to respond in love, right? To defeat it and to convict that opposition with the very love of Jesus Christ not an affirm-at-all-cost love, but with the love of Jesus Christ, love that is patient and kind, that does not envy or boast, that is not prideful, that does not dishonor others, that is not self-seeking or easily angered, love that keeps no records of wrongs, that does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth, and might I add, upholds the truth, love that protects and trusts and hopes 
and perseveres. That is the love that we are after, and that is the love that we want to convict any kind of opposition that faces our way. And while being aware of opposition is certainly helpful, um, it's also not enough. If we want to love as Christ loved and to respond as Christ would respond and to defeat that opposition, we need to rely on the Spirit. Right? We have to rely on the Spirit dwelling within us. A relationship with the Holy God has never been more readily accessible than since the Garden of Eden. But it is now, because we have the very Spirit of God dwelling within us. And He needs to be the source through which we respond to the world around us. As we enjoy a mundane Tuesday, as we enjoy the joys of life, And as we face the opposition, whatever opposition we face to our practice of the way of Jesus, whatever that opposition is, whether it is persecution or ridicule or cancellation or being framed as a threat to love, we need to rely on the Spirit in those moments to allow him to instruct our response as we seek to be followers of the way. And as we seek to work in conjunction with the very triune God, to testify that Jesus Christ is Lord. And apart from relying on the Spirit, that simply is a hopeless endeavor. Now, I recognize that point number three isn't always easy. Sometimes it's really hard to depend on the Spirit. Sometimes we want to do that, and we just don't know how to do that. Um, Sometimes we feel like, even if we're a follower of Jesus, we start to question Mm, do I even really have the Spirit in me? Because I don't really feel it. Now, you do. Don't believe otherwise. Um, but I understand that it is a challenge. And I think, I think relying on the Spirit is a learned response. And it all starts with simply abiding with Jesus. Spending time with him. Learning from him engaging in those practices that we highlight every week, pardon me, every month, right? Because that's, that's why we're doing it, right? The more we engage in those, those spiritual disciplines and those practices of Jesus, the more it allows the Spirit to work in our lives. And so as we do that, become more familiar with his working and with his movement in our, in our life so that we can respond the way that he wants us to respond, But our ability to face that opposition starts long before we face it, right? It starts on that mundane Tuesday when we aren't encountering opposition, but when we willingly choose to abide with Jesus. Worship team, you guys can make your way up. We're going to close with a song. A song I know we're all familiar with, or most of us should be familiar with, King of Kings. It's not a new song. We've sung it many times. Um, and it beautifully captures the heart of the gospel message. Right? How quite Christ came and dwelt among us. How before that we were without hope and without light and life. But because he came, he gave that to us. And in the bridge, there is this line. Um, I don't know if I had really captured the power of this line before I actually gave it some attention this morning when I was reading not this morning, this week, when I was reading through the lyrics. And it says, 
and the church of Christ was born. This is, this is after having sung of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It says, and the church of Christ was born. And then the Spirit lit the flame. And because of that, this gospel truth of old shall not kneel and shall not faint. It's not a surprise to us that we live in a hostile world to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think we know that, but that's also not new. As we've already heard this morning, the gospel has always existed in a hostile world to its message. And yet, it has refused to kneel and it has refused to faint. It's actually the exact opposite that has happened. It has exploded and it has thrived under opposition. And the funny thing is, that's exactly what Jesus said would happen 2,000 years ago. The greatest dinner party of all time. He said that the Spirit would convict the world. And that is exactly what is happening. Right? In the face of tremendous opposition for centuries, the way of Jesus continues to live on. It certainly isn't because Christians are really good at convincing people of things. We're probably the opposite most times. It's because the very Spirit of God is at work within us, allowing us to participate in God's unfolding story for humanity and to spread the good news of Jesus Christ to the world. And so if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, you'll remember I said that there is, there is encouragement in this passage, and it has it bountifully. And the encouragement is that the very Spirit of God resides within us, that His Spirit and his power is accessible to us. And that as we face opposition, whatever that opposition looks like in our life, the very spirit of God goes before us and goes with us as we face it. And in the battle between life and death, in the battle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness, we're on the winning side. We are on the winning side. And so our encouragement to both you and to me is as we face that, to not fall away from the faith, but to continue to testify to the world that Jesus Christ is Lord. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, your word is, it's powerful. And Lord, sometimes even though I spend two weeks preparing for this, Lord, like just coming back to it again this morning, its power just hits you. That we have been invited to participate in your mission, a mission that we know how it ends. And how despite going through the challenges of our life and the, the challenges that we face to following you, Lord, that you promise to go with us wherever that is. And that's through your word we see that we are attaching ourselves to a winning cause. Um, that you are the king of this world. And I pray, Lord, that as we continue to submit ourselves to you, that we would continue to experience your power and your presence as we go about our everyday lives. We thank you for this moment and that we can come before you as a group congregation, Lord, and, and worship you. And Lord, we know that the, the obstacles 
that we face are a little different than the obstacles of, of your disciples around the world, Lord, who wouldn't be able to do this. And so we pray a prayer of blessing and protection over them. We pray that they would continue to remain faithful to your cause, that you would prevent them from stumbling, and that you would allow them to continue to testify, Lord, that you are Lord, um, even to their final moments. We pray these things in your name, Lord. Amen.